0: Hey, it's Samson Folk here to do a mailbag episode, a bunch of questions from listeners, viewers wondering about the Raptors offseason. So far, I did one at the top of the offseason, kind of getting, I guess we're in the middle more or less now, and uh, people have questions, and I have answers for some of these good answers, uh, more speculative answers for others, I suppose. So I hope you enjoy it. Let's get into it. There's a bunch of stuff in this one so evan gualberto blake murphy and charlie bender all asked about how Otto porter jr is going to be utilized on the raptors what that might look like and so i'll take this opportunity to do kind of like a breakdown video on Otto porter jr because i haven't done one for the channel yet so there'll be some film there'll be some talking points some stats uh strap in so among wings and forwards auto porter jr has an argument as the best offensive rebounder at his position since he's been in the league. A handful of seasons above the 90th percentile in offensive rebounding rate, including last season, he's incredibly effective at being in motion as a screener, shooter, and hunting rebounding opportunities against Smalls, spacing guys out to the three-point line and then pulling them under the basket once the shot goes up. Finishing at the rim is the same. Most of his seasons are around 70%, and his reads of the floor as a cutter are tremendous. This is a guy who sees space and knows when it's his job to fill it. As a shooter, he can screen and pop, screen and slip, hit off of pin downs, hit off of flares. The Raptors love running weave to slip their shooters open and to get their ball handlers downhill. Porter is comfortable in that. The Raptors love to use shooters as screeners and ghost them. He's also comfortable doing that. A career 40% three-point shooter. This is once the three and d archetype was firmly established in the NBA. Porter was one of the sexiest names coming forward. And while he was still healthy and his body wasn't quitting on him in certain regards, he was so good at this with the with the Wizards. And so that's, that's great. Last year, he dipped a little bit in his catch and shoot numbers. He was at around 36%. But from 2016 to 2020, he didn't hit at lower than 40%. And over that span, hit 43% of his catch and shoot jumpers. If you're thinking of the Raptors as a shooting team, what that looked like last year, yes, Gary and Fred did a lot of heavy lifting. OG, once he sorted out having a broken finger. Uh, But you also have to think about from the all-star break to the end of the season, where Fred and Gary both shot less than 30% from three. The shooting was in, it was poverty. It was in a terrible place. And Otto Porter Jr. as one of the more consistent shooters in the NBA over this span, since he's been in the league, really, just inserting him in as a screener, as a guy to kind of compound advantages, make good reads on the move, flash into space and space the floor. I think he's, he's going to add so much there. He just enhances countless actions for the team and does it on high efficiency. And for Raptors team that hunted more offensive rebounds last season, because they lack shooting prowess at many spots on the floor, having a guy who can keep his feet in both camps is the platonic ideal. He can screen for Fred, Pascal, Scotty, OG, and Gary. He can be positioned anywhere in set actions, which may free up more ball handling duties for, especially in the early season, OG and Anobi to try some things out. Because he won't, you don't have to position OG, the forty percent three point shooter, in the cor- well catch and shoot right. You don't have to position him in the corner for the health of these set actions to provide spacing so that other people can succeed. You can put him in these actions now because Otto Porter Jr. can do. A similar effect on the defense as far as spacing goes and Otto will just fit in like that and he can do it with mostly starter lineups and he can also do it in the transitional lineups the big question might be in the lineups where the raptors were playing no point guards uh where pascal was mostly on ball gary he was in every once in a while but you're looking at mostly wing slash big lineups where the raptors that democratic rim protection that they went for last year They were fantastic at it with those lineups. They threw a lot of bodies, a lot of length at guys, not very many attempts at the rim. And they got a lot of steals and a lot of blocks as well. And on the other side, they struggled immensely on offense, but that was buoyed by them grabbing about 40% of their own misses. Otto Porter Jr. as a shooter, as a really good offensive rebounder, and as a guy with size and length, projects to fit into those awkward, strange, but effective lineups really well too. And defensively, even though he's much more limited athletically now than he used to be, he's a big, long body on that end of the floor, which helps squeeze it, which complicates actions, crowds actions for the other team, even if he's not going to be stepping out on guys on switches like Pascal or Precious or OG or anything like that, despite being of a similar, I, I guess, size. He's he's a guy who moves well within the defense. I think he's been a smart defensive decision maker over the course of his career, steal rates, block rates have always been high. He's always been opportunistic without earning too much on the side of gambling. And basically, if you don't overextend him as far as court coverage goes, which we'll see how Nick Nurse handles that, we'll see how Otto's body reacts to that, I think that he should be a positive on the defensive end. I mean, he just came from playing meaningful minutes on a championship team and the Warriors' When Steph Curry is the guy leading your team, of course you'll be known as an offensive team, but the Warriors were really great defensively. And I don't think that Otto took anything away from them on that end. So, yeah, I think we just have to be mindful about his workload. And by we, I mean, not me, but Nick nurse and Alex McKechnie, the organization or whatever, pay attention to how he's doing. He only played like 42 games. The two years prior to last year His he's, he's been figuring out his body to this point. And so I think Nick Nurse, particularly in concert with the training staff and all that kind of stuff, they have to figure out how they're going to use him, what that looks like, because I think with his play, which I'm expecting to be very good, he'll probably be a fixture in a lot of Nick Nurse's favorite lineups. So you have to watch how much he use him probably. Okay, Aiden Moss, Raptors underscore one, two, three, four, five, Doge Jesus and the Matthew T asked about Malachi Flint. Obviously, because he's dropping 70 burgers and 50 plus point performances, Pro-Ams and and the Drew League. I think that we as a collective, well, fan bases in general, don't really pay attention to how many guys are putting up those numbers of points. Uh, It happens all the time. But once it enters your sphere and you're like, oh, this guy did it and I know this guy and he's on my team. Let me look for indicators that this means better play is coming forward. And I think Malachi Flynn, watching some of those highlights and stuff like that, I don't see any difference in play style between that, some of his better games at the NBA level, and uh, when he was hitting shots in summer league. That's what Malachi Flynn has mostly been doing in his best stretches at the NBA level. His NBA skills when translating are, I would say, average to above average guard defense, which is really important and somewhat underrated in the NBA, but also being able to shoot the ball. I happened last year to write this big piece about Malachi and how there was an opportunity to be seized before he got, you know, before they put him in the starting lineup in the midst of all of that craziness when they had nobody healthy and they were just grasping at straws for who to come off the bench. And he played well. And a lot of that was due to Pascal Siakam creating a lot of open looks, playing off of that and also Malachi, I think, pushing the ball in transition, making good decisions in the open floor. In the half court, as a guy on ball, I don't think that there's been a bunch of stuff to make you say the Raptors are going to invest in him, that he's going to run a lot of their possessions. And this isn't to say that Malachi isn't NBA quality. When I wrote that piece last year, it wasn't that suddenly Malachi was better it was that suddenly there was an opportunity for him and he's an NBA level guard who, when he had that opportunity, he did well with it. If he gets opportunities this year, I expect him to do decent with it, provided that it allows him to play within himself. What the Raptors have been doing, basically, they took the best pick and roll guard in the draft, Malkai Flynn, and then they, for two years, haven't paired him with anybody who... We'll set a good screen for him to give him clearance to come out over the top. Nobody who's a capable short roller to score out of if there's nobody else pressing and making the defense pay on the floor. The defense is just going to kind of insulate against that. Okay, you made the short roll pass. Now what happens? Is Kim Birch going to hit between 18 to 14 footers until we hemorrhage? I don't think so. And Malachi needs a good screener to give him clearance. He needs a dangerous roller to make his passing in that play type a little bit more advantageous for the Raptors. And so the Raptors drafted a guy that they've basically done an extremely poor job of incubating with things that would help his career. So I think Malachi, I don't really see how the Raptors are going to acquiesce to his needs when they have so many other burgeoning ball handlers on the team, uh, and Obi, Scotty Barnes, Gary Trent Jr. to some degree. Look, Gary Gary is younger than Malachi. So I think Malachi, if I was a, another team, I would be very interested to think of him as a second draft guy to where, hey, if we give you a good dynamic guy on the second unit to run pick and rolls with, does, do you maybe come along? And that's where your career starts to progress. That's really interesting. But as it currently stands, the Raptors are just asking Malachi to hit a lot of difficult shots when he's on the on the floor. That's that's an almost impossible situation to be in if you're not a star. And that's why he struggled a lot, I think, in his NBA career. And I, they haven't made it easy on him. And I don't think that the pro-ams or the big scoring blowouts change the, the reality of his situation. Okay, so Makai Bruce, the newest staff member at Raptors Republic, asks... What areas do you think Precious Achua needs to improve in and how do you think he can make those improvements? So I know there are some people who probably want him to lean all the way into those guard or guard adjacent skills. There's some wisdom in that. If you have outlier skills relative to size or position, why not just hit the over button and see how far it goes? I think that the Raptors should be willing to give him some possessions where he's allowed to flourish or to attempt to flourish with guard skills, pull-up skills, stuff like that over the course of the season. But I think you want Precious Achua to start using his size to succeed in more big man adjacent situations. And that's putting more of a body on guys when you're the screener. That's finding the pacing to flash into space, to mirror drives as a cutter, dunker spot, or as a guy who's rolling to the basket, short rolling, whatever. This puts him in positions, if he can do those things, not only to get the easy, low-hanging fruit buckets that other less skilled big men get, but it will also put him in positions where he can use his guard skills to dominate out of those places. As as he scales up his usage in his career, when we look at the, the series against the Philadelphia 76ers, can you just create this situation where Precious Sichua gets to attack, advantageous closeouts repeatedly. Not really. We, we see the ball skills and we say, this looks good for Precious. I'd, I'm curious where this goes. But he's showing more ball skills than typical centers because we think of him as a center because he's so damn good on defense and he plays this big, fantastic rim protector style on occasion. But he's not creating a lot off the dribble statically. This is a guy who needs advantages created for him. So that's not something you work on. That's just a guy attacking closeouts. You work on your shoot. Your shooting to make closeouts more dangerous for the defense so that you get advantage closeouts so you can put the ball on the floor. But if Precious puts himself in positions where maybe he's really great at short rolling and finds space, what is the difference between in the series against the 76ers when Precious flashed middle against Joel Embiid in the zone and he caught the ball at 16, 17 feet and Joel has to step up and Precious beats him to the glass, like puts the dribble down, beats him to the rim. Or if Joel is stepping up at the to close out at the three-point line and he beats him off the dribble there, anybody, right? If you short roll, you dictate that people step up or you, you try and make a shot from there or guys step up, somebody fills behind them and you make the read to the corner maybe. Wherever, right? Maybe the guy peels off of the above the break to the corner and you fake to the corner and go above the break. Maybe it's Gary Trent Jr. Whatever it is, you have to be able to work comfortably in set actions as a big. Dems the brakes. That's how it works. And I think Precious needs a ton of work. Nick Nurse was talking about him in the offseason. He was just throwing a bunch of credit his way. He says he's figured something out. But Precious is a guy who... Offensively, I saw him work extremely well out of advantaged situations where he got to put where defenders were already compromised, precious his combination of fluidity, athletic punch, and finally when he started finishing well at the rim proved too much and that mixed with he was shooting the three ball great after the All-Star break. That all made him very dangerous, but it wasn't static like wing Create from the 45 extended, like we've seen from Pascal and like we've seen from OG at a much worse rate, obviously. But that is the way that Nick Nurse has kind of allowed for progression. He's just like isolate for quite a few guys at this point. Maybe Precious gets some of those, but I think Precious as a roller, Precious working on his pacing, his hands, his ability to. We see this with DeAndre Ayton. Makai, you wrote a great piece about DeAndre Ayton. He's not coming to the Raptors, but you know the thought was nice. The best bigs prove that they're able to flash into space to provide support or be outright hubs like Embiid or Jokic, right? And Precious certainly, what he looks like in six years or something, we'll see. But right now, if he wants to become a positive on offense, he has to start doing some of those low hanging fruit jobs that other bigs succeed at that will eventually make his outlier skills in other areas really, really pop. So I'm looking for more of the low hanging fruit, big man stuff for him to, to work on and added onto that. B ball thinking asks, my related thought is, do you feel precious basically maintains his end of season level of play? If he does, is he a most improved player consideration? Have you seen someone so asymmetric in their development? You know, an example is figures out what are typically hard things before the easy things. And I think that he so basically what I said to Kai, right, is that a lot of what Precious was doing well was because he was getting these advantageous closeouts, which he immediately will stop getting if he doesn't hit his three pointers, which means that it's very important for cold streaks to go to his to be able to short roll, to be able to get buckets as a law threat, to be able to set good screens, to clear guys so you can create two on one scenarios in the pick and roll, stuff like that, you know. Provide those advantages that don't require, as you say, do the hard things before the easy things, find the easy things. I think that if Precious doesn't hit three-pointers, he probably won't be able to keep up the same level of offense. But I think Precious will hit above 34% from three and that he'll draw closeouts and that'll be good. And defensively, I think he's going to get even better. I would not be surprised if Precious is the best defender on the Raptors next year. He's... He's incredible on that end. He, man, he blows my mind. Uh, if anybody new watcher, new listener, just type probably type in "Precious Achua superstar" or "Precious Achua defensive superstar." I did a deep dive on his defense back in January, and all the reasons for why he's so incredible should come up. And that just became more and more proven over the course of the year. So, so I expect Precious to. I think maintain his level of play mostly. I'm excited to see what types of steps he makes on offense, especially because he views himself as probably less of a big than most people do. But the way the Raptors play, it both pigeonholes him as a big in some respects because he's not going to be as good off the ball or, sorry, on the ball as guys like Scotty or uh, Pascal or Fred. But also it's a, you know, a scheme that allows him to bring the ball up on occasion and is a little bit more fluid in the way that they switch and stuff like that. So we'll see. And yeah, asymmetrical. He's definitely a very, very interesting guy that he's only doing the hard things. Have I seen someone so asymmetrical in their development? Yeah, I'm not really sure. Precious Achua is singular to me to kind of uh, to analyze. I haven't seen a player like him before. As Fendi or asks, what is your favorite archetype to watch or which do you tend to watch the most? I think guards with guile are my favorite to watch. And maybe that's because of Kyle Lowry. Maybe that's because of Markel Fultz, who's uh, his mixtape at Washington, I think is the best mixtape I've ever seen in my life. It doesn't have the the Zion aspect of like dunking on this five foot four white kid. And you're just like, Oh my God. But As far as just a basketball player doing incredible basketball things, Fultz at Washington, I thought he was headed for a Hall of Fame career. What's happened is really sad. but, But yeah, I think guards with guile are really, really interesting. And Jimmy Butler, probably, he's not really a guard, but guys who continue to flex the smallest advantages and really rely on getting people off balance with these unique moves and a unique combination of decision-making. It's uh it's fantastical to watch guys like Kyle Lowry or Fultz or Jimmy Butler kind of weak. And Pascal Siakam actually qualifies as a player like this, especially last season, because teams were playing pack line defense on them and the Raptors didn't have any shooting and they, they saw a lot of his own and Pascal was still being handed the ball. And it's like, Hey, Score the basketball. And if you're not going to shoot a three, if you're not going to hit a jumper from 18 feet, how are you going to get to the bucket when there's so many people standing in your way? And the answer for, you know, Jimmy, for Pascal, for Kyle, for so many faults is to be incredibly creative in how you manipulate your initial defender and offset the waiting defenders and how they go about doing that and being slinky on their way to the basket, the incredible amount of shot making, push shots, layups funky release points that come uh those are always my favorite players to watch i think because it it comes off as so inventive when i think a lot of the times we assume that guys who get to the rim are the guys who punch like there's a dunk and jimmy butler doesn't dunk that much and kyle lowry only ever dunked at the all-star game and and villanova and pascal while he does dunk typically the way defenses play him He has to pick up his dribble to protect it way earlier because of how much defensive attention he's getting. And uh, he has to make these little floaters and little pop shots and stuff like that. And and Fultz, the same thing, just very inventive finishers probably. And, And being inventive on the way to the bucket are my favorite people to watch. I know that's not really an archetype, but that's my answer. HJ, the four and Sergio are wondering about the lack of pick and roll from the Raptors. Okay. So Basically Fred is the only guy who's running a lot of pick and roll during last regular season. Once the Raptors kind of saw what Pascal was doing, Nick Nurse saw what Pascal was doing, we saw his pick and roll possessions kind of go up as the season went on and he ran twice as much pick and roll in the playoffs as he did in the during the regular season. It was around 12.4% of his possessions were pick and roll in the the regular season. And it was up to 25% in the playoffs and the efficiency was definitely there. I think that that's something that Nick nurse years, honestly, I've been covering the team for years for years. I've asked him, (laughs) me ask him, I've asked why not, why not give Pascal more screen help? Why not let Pascal, instead of just dictating like, Hey, go ISO beat guys, beat the second level of defense, just, just, the biggest weight in the world. Pascal had more isolations than anybody else in the NBA last year. Luca had 799. Pascal had 803. Insane. And so why not give a guy a little bit more screen help, especially a guy who's such a terror heading downhill. Let him beat his initial guy. You know, I've always wondered why they don't run more pick and roll. And, OG has had quite a few games last season. I know the isolation numbers are really bad for OG. A lot of people started paying attention to that and and correctly, but I think that OG an empty side pick and roll or something like that. We saw a lot of it. January 15th, awesome game against the Bucs. So much attention went to Pascal's way and Fred's way that the Raptors, honestly, they started running empty side pick and roll for OG. And I thought that The results, I think he shot nine of 23 that game. They weren't amazing, but it was enough to sustain the offense. I'd like to see OG, especially he's such a truck. He's such a truck going downhill. I'd be interested. And he makes great decisions passing on the move for the record. I'd be very interested to see what those possessions looked like if a little bit more went his way. I don't, I didn't like the OG isolation possessions. I thought that It was, I've explained what workout ball is before. I've explained that he looked like he had premeditated decisions in his head where he wanted to get to. And a lot of it just ended up being jumpers pick and roll allows him to get downhill, pick up his dribble with a bit of steam. It's a, it's a much better play type for him, I think. And you know, Scotty, Scotty is a guy who succeeds at basically anything and everything after a certain amount of possessions, his pick and roll usage, I hope goes up because, I'm just imagining a guy like that getting to a spot where the pop shot is there, but so is the lob and you know how James Harden always had that like read and react lob slash floater thing with Clint Capella. That was awesome. I mean, I wonder if Scotty could ever get to that point. It, It would be super, super fun. And yeah, so more pick and roll, I think is, I really hope the Raptors run more pick and roll. Maybe it doesn't jive with all the read and react that that Nick nurse wants. But I think that the Raptors are leaving some meat on the table, meat on the bone, sorry, food on the table, meat on the bone, as far as that goes, because the pick and roll is, there's a reason other teams run it way more than the Raptors. There's a reason that it's one of the most successful plays in the history of the NBA. And, uh, you know, maybe blind pig when it first came in, like the, the throw ahead and the cut behind was blowing people's minds. I don't know. But the pick and roll has staying power for a reason. It creates an inherent advantage. And I think that the Raptors are ignoring advantages on offense when they aren't running it and are j- just asking guys to create out of isolation. So I hope we see, we see more of it next year. Amina Poco asks four questions or like a four-part question. One, what archetype do you see Scotty morphing into over in the next few seasons? And how much will the Raptors offense dictate the answer? Two. If you were the coach, what current offense would you employ to most effectively build up Scotty's skill tree over the next few seasons? Three A. Is there any worry that Scotty's scoring is developing at the expense of the field slash passing? Three B. And if so, would you rather have Scotty the A scorer with B B passing feel, or vice versa, Scotty with A passing feel and B scoring ability? Okay. So this is this is a really really good question. This is something that will largely affect how the Raptors succeed over the the coming years, how Scotty develops. Okay, what archetype? I talked about this with with Ben Pfeiffer. We did like forty five minutes on Scotty and and what he might grow into, and we were taking stabs at it in the dark. But uh, what I came, the closest vision of it, and it's still foggy, is that this is a guy who's getting buckets in isolation. This was also the takeaway from my uh, my big piece on him when I went through all of his possessions. But a guy who's getting buckets in isolation while also simultaneously being a DHO hub, um, presumably in the future, a, a post-up hub, even though he didn't succeed at, at the static post-ups. That was something I was tracking this past season. Static post-ups were bad. His East-West movement really helps him get the edge on defenders. And it, it kind of leans into more of his athletic abilities rather than just getting the ball... Kind of how OG overpowers guys with this static slam back. Uh, Saudi is a guy who overpowers while simultaneously changing the uh, the terms of engagement, like which position on the floor you have to meet him. He's switching hips and all that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, a DHO hub, honestly, probably a post up hub to some degree. They can run actions out of maybe an elbow hub instead of a traditional post hub, and uh, a guy who's scoring in isolation, honestly. Ah, uh, we we talked about and we're kicking around like is there that Draymond Green aspect of he's short rolling and picking apart defenses while on the move. If he does that too, that's so so valuable, especially if Fred is on the team for a long time. Fred is a capable short roll passer, like getting guys the ball in the short roll, much better than getting guys the traditional roll. And uh, yeah, that would be awesome. If I was the coach, what would I employ to most effectively build up Scotty's skill tree? Okay. I think that the Raptors currently have a lot of freedom in the offense to freestyle, to make reads in motion and stuff like that. And I think that's very good for Scotty. It's something that's in development for him. It's not something he's been tremendous at. I was often left wanting about how he was reading the second level of the defense as a primary, which I think is why his isolation numbers were so good was because Typically, the second level of defense didn't care much about Scotty's isolations, and he succeeded being on an island with another guy trying to contend with him. Um His connective passing was not as quick as I thought it was going to be uh, during the regular season. There were some misses he made, and honestly, the best passes he made were when he was in the open floor that shouldn't That shouldn't surprise many people. But I think that I'm excited to to see him in more pick and roll as I just talked about there's quite a few different ways where Scotty coming downhill and making reads on the move on the drive really could manifest into some awesome, awesome plays. And more so than anybody else on the Raptors, Scotty delivers the easiest buckets a lot of the time relative to usage. Cause Pascal is obviously that dude um, during the, the regular season during the playoffs, because he dictates so much attention from the defense. You have to create these easy buckets, but Scotty is a guy who's inventive. He's a way more inventive passer than Pascal. But of course, you're riding the line between what do you dictate from the defense? How easy does that make the reads? And then what is your passing skill within those reads? And Scotty's passing skill, I think, without a doubt, is the highest on the team. He could have very complex reads sitting in front of him. And I think he'll make the right read and be able to make the pass in that read such a high percentage of the time. And uh, so I think... This offense gets him the ball in motion. A lot of the times he was just getting a touch on the weave before sliding off to somebody else and going to the dunker spot or to the weak side corner this year. But maybe more of those touches turn into dribbles and possessions where he can freestyle. I think that's good. It leaves it open to what he's succeeding at and what reads he can make. The pick and roll, as I said, will help. Is there any worry that Scotty's scoring is developing at the expense of the field slash passing? No. Uh, this is probably just my philosophical idea of playmaking but you to be the best playmaker you have to threaten the defense as a scorer otherwise you're going to you're going to be mitigated and so the better Scotty's scoring is honestly the the better the the playmaking is going to be and i guess that answers the a scorer with b passing feel or a passing feel and b scoring ability i'd rather have a scorer with b passing feel because You know, Jason Tatum is. We saw the limitations of his passing, of course, in the finals, but we also saw as the Celtics got to the finals that Jason Tatum, despite having lower passing feel, is such an overwhelming presence on ball that he cripples defenses, even if he doesn't make the best passing read. He cripples defenses. He dictates so much attention. Pascal is similar. Uh, Pascal is a much better passer than Tatum, of course, but. Pascal is a guy who's passing feel for his vision, all that kind of stuff, isn't the best in the world, but he still creates so many opportunities because teams just have to throw so much attention his way. So I'd rather have a score with B passing feel. I think Uh, that really great question. Uh, I've been thinking about it, I guess, for a little while, and this was a messy answer, but I hope that uh, there's some wisdom in it. Richard Earl asked what type of excuse will Nick Nurse use when he overplays Fred and Pascal this year? Winning, honestly. Uh, many people, myself included, were kind of, you know, furrowing brows at the way that he used guys this year. Pascal obviously did not break down. what whatever the whatever Pascal is doing for his conditioning, oh my, he he might be the most well-conditioned athlete in the NBA based on what was asked of him this year. And his his body didn't falter. Incredible. But Fred's did. And maybe it's a bit too big of a jump to say that it's a direct correlation between how many minutes Fred played and where his knee was at the end of the season and where it might be going forward. But, you know, it's anytime you ask Nick Nurse, it's about wins. It's not about development. It's not about, oh, yeah, we're just trying to get these guys here. It's just they want to win games. So. What would his excuse be? His excuse would be, I want to win games. And honestly, Nick Nurse, his coaching philosophy and his unwillingness to play the guys lower on the rung this past season, the, the Raptors did win more games because of it. Was, it. was it an N negative because of where Fred was? I guess possibly, but that would be his excuse for sure. Caitlin Cooper asks, what book best represents what you project to be the story arc for the Raptors next season? And who are some of your favorite NBA writers? Okay. So the NBA writers question is the one I'll start with. And I'm maybe not so good at this as I've started to work more in the industry. I've taken in much less NBA content. Like I used to listen to every Zach Lowe podcast that came out and I've, I haven't listened to his echo podcast in like a year, for example. And that doesn't mean that Zacho isn't good. It's just, I'm doing so much work in this industry that I'm not paying as much attention probably to as much work that's coming out of it. But Tyler Tynes, Tyler Ricky Tynes, I think writes incredible features. It's very clear the way he's able to connect with the athletes and the people he's writing about really has a profound effect on his pieces. Uh, they're awesome. Caitlin, I know you didn't ask for me to say this, but you, um, as far as I know, for people covering teams, I don't think there's anybody, anybody, anywhere that when they cover a team can as precisely describe why they succeed and why they don't and properly name and format like, hey, this is what's happening on a basketball court. And that goes from micro skills to play calling, all that kind of stuff, um, your grasp on the Pacers, I think, is unparalleled. I certainly don't do it that well for the Raptors. I I haven't seen anybody else do it that well for a bunch of other places. Uh, Dan Devine, I think, is super, super fun as well at the Ringer. Uh, he's so creative and has such a, like an interesting verve in the way that he covers the league. He's uh, awesome. PD Webb also, although he's not really an NBA writer, but anytime he writes something, I think that... Uh, he's doing things his own way and he gives you so much to chew on. And I talked about this when I was talking with Kenny Beecham is that I don't care about predictive writing much. I I really like reading descriptive writing and maybe that's why, you know, Tyler Tynes is like such a good, you know, he's, he's writing the description of this person's day-to-day life and all this kind of stuff. But being able to describe what has happened accurately is the most important part of the job because predictive stuff whatever but PD is somebody who when he writes something he explains it to the fullest extent as he understands it maybe it's wrong maybe it's right as far as I know everything that I know about basketball he's right a lot of the time and the way that he views it is quite novel and I think that that's very valuable even even if outcomes change and outcomes are based on a bunch of different things I think being able to show your work is awesome. And if you're doing analysis and there's so much analysis out there because so many people don't have access and access to players is different now because of social media. And so many people can see what a player is like without ever asking them a question. And so many people who cover teams don't get the same access to players now, you know, the pandemic, especially that they used to get that changes the relationship of how they write about guys. So analysis is a big thing. And if you're going to do analysis instead of like doing beat work and writing stories about players, show your work, man. And uh, PD is one of the best at showing his work. And then there's a whole bunch of writers who I think do a very good job of uh, humanizing these athletes because a lot of writers and there's a history of writers is sports writers who do a very bad job of humanizing these athletes and especially as analytics and more numbers come into it. And the way that we view these players, Uh, I love analytics for what it's worth. Like a stat page is very fun to look at for me. Not as fun as film. I go film and then I look at stats. I know some people, it's the inverse. They do their queries and stuff like that. But being able to humanize the, the people you write about and to tell their stories as a person rather than your ideal version of like, this is this player, they do this. This is the statistical outcome. Uh, humanizing work i think is really really important and then okay which book best represents what you project to be the story arc for the raptors next season (sighs) i dune messiah maybe when i when i think about the hubris of you know doing things your own way you have to have a hubris you have to think it's right And Doom Messiah is as much about hubris as many other things that I've read. And knowing that your answer is probably wrong and knowing that the real answer is really scary. And I think that the Raptors, the way they're choosing to do team building to kind of shun ball skills and stuff like that is maybe the golden path. Like ball skills are the golden path, right? Length isn't the golden path. And eventually they they can amass power. Maybe the Raptors will be this extremely imposing regular season team. But if things dry up in the playoffs because they don't have enough ball skills or creation, uh, maybe that is the golden path that they're not able to kind of put themselves the way of. And they're not going to go that way. I, I don't really know. And, and maybe the Raptors are seeking out every avenue they can think of in this version. Like they want to find a different way. They're scared of the golden path. They're intimidated by the ball skills. Right. And they think that they come at such a cost as far as how, what type of draft pick you have to use to get ball skills, what it costs in a trade. Can you even get those guys in free agency? And, and they're like, well, can we really do it? Is there another way? And I, you know, you probably do have to come back to it at at some point. Maybe that'll develop on the roster, right? But if this, se- this season is a book, maybe Dune Messiah, where they're very powerful at points in time, but uh, it all ends up being futile in the face of what actually has to happen, I guess. Trey asks, how will the backup point guard minutes be allocated? Do I see Pascal and Scotty assuming that role, or will Nurse lean on Malachi slash Delano more this season? I don't think it will be Malachi and Delano. Uh, Delano you point guard minutes, you want, uh, you want a guy to be able to provide advantages and playmaking and scoring punch in the half court. And Delano, nobody was worse at it last year than him. Nobody. Uh, he, he couldn't create anything above the break. And a lot of what Delano did well was – in the open floor where he got to push pace and, you know, as a cutter and a finisher, I think that he flashed some stuff and we'll see about how the jump shot is. Like I know you Trey have been kind of impressed with how he performed in summer league, as far as jump shooting, that's all fine. But Delano, I think still has a really, really long way to go to be a guy who's leading an offense, even, even as a backup. Right. And Malachi, I kind of talked about before. Um, I don't think the opportunity is there because OG wants to be on ball. Pascal needs to be on ball. Scotty needs to be on ball. Fred needs to be on ball. Gary needs to be on ball sometimes too. So I think they'd rather farm out ball handling possessions, point guard possessions to their wings with some ball skills and see how that goes rather than give to Malachi or Delano, honestly. Charlemagne Wong asks, just curious, is it a good progression for an analyst to be a scout or an assistant coach or something? Are you interested in becoming a staff on the Raptors team? Please don't mind me. I'm always curious about other industries, career paths. Okay. So first thing, uh, I don't know nearly enough about basketball to, uh, to be on the Raptors staff. I don't think I know there's basically two people I know who write about basketball, who I think could be on an NBA bench or anywhere close to that. And presumably if a a beat reporter or anybody like that is kind of posturing as if they have like all these opportunities or something like that, I think they're probably aggrandizing the position they have ahead of them. Like maybe it's, it's tough to be an NBA decision maker. And NBA beat writers are very... Well, analysts, in public analysts, beat writers, stuff like that, you're public facing. Your work is so digestible and it's also, you know more about the team and you know more about all these situations than most people, but that, does not, that doesn't mean that uh, you know more than like, the, the gap between people who work in basketball and the people who write about basketball sometimes can be staggering. And I like to think I'm a pretty good analyst, and that doesn't mean I'm missing things. It's just like Gibson Piper, half-court hoops. This is a guy who, who can break down playbooks and stuff like that. This is a guy who, if you looked at what he wrote down as meaningful changes after the Boston and Golden State Finals, the things he was seeing, the changes he saw that the teams were making, no, no analyst, none. Uh, covering these teams would come close. The stuff he is picking up, the the gap in knowledge um, is quite vast. And that doesn't mean that we're missing things. It's just that you don't really know what to look for sometimes. You, what coaches, scouts, like a, a professional scout, an NBA scout who's not scouting for draft picks, but a guy who's scouting opposing teams what they're looking for is much more minute than what I'm trying to write about or what many people who do what I do are trying to write about. And as somebody who I do more specific, like scout work, I guess like what I'm talking about is especially some of the, the breaking it down stuff I do is more specific. People aren't super interested in that. It's, it's alienating. I think a little bit too. Um, Not everybody wants to engage with it. They, when you're writing and communicating basketball, I saw Daniel Kaluuya in an interview talk about special simple, which is being able to describe simple concepts in a special way or special concepts in a simple way. And then meeting those two in the middle that it's understood and you're communicating what's happening. That is what a writer is trying to do. Special simple. A coach is not trying to do special simple. A scout is not trying to do special simple. They're trying to be complex and very, very thorough in writing out these reports, like how you, and they also have to be more mindful about being predictive. You know, as somebody who's an analyst like myself is, I like to be able to watch a game and tell you what happened. But if you want me to be predicting what happens between these two teams, how things manifest, the machinations of the ongoing game, all the different matchups and stuff like that, uh, that's what coaches have to do. That's what you know, NBA scouts have to do. And that's, that's tough. So all that to say, it would be incredible for somebody who does what I do to end up on a, an NBA bench. My God, that would be extremely impressive. Christian Coloco enjoyer asks stylistically slash tactically. What do you think is the most important thing for the Raptors to do differently next season to have success? Okay. So I would like to see them mix in a drop with scotty as the drop guy pascal is the drop guy and precious is the drop guy a little bit more next season just to kind of throw a wrench into how offenses want to attack them and to let particularly fred chase over the top and see how that goes uh just just to see a little bit of diversity defensively and uh yeah and offensively more pick and roll for the love of god yes i've already talked about that ad nauseum the man they call Mac asks if Nick nurse were to create a band out of the projected starting five, which player would have what position lead singer, bass drums, etc And why? Okay. Um, I guess Gary Trent Jr. First of all, would be the freestyler. Like he would be guitar, electric guitar, you know, prone to solo, all that kind of stuff. He was, he had really great isolation stats this year. Let's say, um, well, not let's say that's true. Uh, drums, setting the baseline, like, you know, the back drum would be Fred because he has the ball the most and he establishes the ground. I guess Pascal was the, the most Pascal was the guy you noticed the most. So he would be the lead singer. Um, I guess OG on like bass guitar, because he's also, because of how they structure him in the, in the offense, He's a guy who and you can have a bass guitar solo, which, you know, uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the world is a really good bass guitar battle as far as that goes. But OG soloed at times, but is mostly now being used as kind of an instrument of the offense and helping, you know, other players find spacing and stuff like that and being helpful where he's positioned. So I think that works. And Scotty. Man, Scotty is tough. Scotty, I think, would be a guy who has like the harmonica hanging off of this contraption. He has like a guitar. He has like a drum kit that he plays live and he's doing all these things at once, I guess. Uh, That's probably not a great answer. But yeah, that's my answer. Malong asks why the Raptors cut Armani Brooks. Okay, so his uh, contract, this is per Blake Murphy, his contract had a guarantee. The guarantee of his contract was going up on August 1st. So he got cut before then so that they didn't lose more money on that decision. Right. And I guess they felt more comfortable doing so because they must like the guys, you know, be it Wancho or Delton or whoever else they're bringing in uh, for camp. Well, Delton isn't a camp battle, I suppose, but the guys they're bringing in for camp battles, they must feel pretty good about. And Armani, as much as I liked a lot of what he did last year and It looked like he had the potential to do more, especially since his three-point shooting had been much better in other places. The fact that he shot 28% from three on a team that was desperately looking for guys to space the floor and he didn't step into that role, that probably really affected how they viewed him going forward. And as far as a guy who's going to handle the rock and make decisions with the ball in hand, I don't think he delivered on anything as far as that goes. So they're probably looking at him mostly as a shooter and a defender. And, you know, there were some good things he did on defense, but I don't think he held up his end of the bargain on either side uh, to make them, I guess, not worry about saving money, which is unfortunate You wish a guy could come in and do the camp battle and everything, but we'll see where his uh, career goes from here. This My New Era asks, is there hope for a pathway for Gary Trent Jr. becoming a more sturdy defender and consistently accessing a high level of scoring as a Raptor long-term at all? Like his clutch stats and advanced numbers in that category are just so intriguing. No one, Fred, has that. Yeah, this is really, really interesting because... Gary is a guy who's working at a deficit athletically to basically everyone he defends and everyone he tries to score on. That's why a lot of, a lot of the ways you see him score is because he's so good. His pickup point off the dribble is really great in, in relation to how, how he's shooting the ball. Like he's really great at manipulating with the ball, being a live dribble, and then using his steps in sequence with where he's picking the ball up to create separation and then being balanced in that separation. His, his pull-up stuff was awesome this year. Defensively, you can't, you don't, you want the manipulator defensively. You are the guy who has to respond. And if your foot speed is slower and you're not as bursty, you don't get to set the tone or be like clever about it on ball. Off ball, you can be a lot more clever as far as like rude efficiency and the paths you take to zones and stuff like that. But on ball, Gary is a guy who will probably get beat a lot over the course of his career and i that's offset quite a bit by his ability to pick guys he's awesome I uh, in the NBA I don't think I saw a guy who's better at stealing on ball ripping guys without fouling over the course of the season i he probably was the best in the league um, it, like Fred is a dig down king but Fred typically isn't just grabbing the ball out of guys hands right in front of them maybe he'll pick a dribble but yeah. Gary adds that element and he's also, there are companies that track this stuff, but as far as gambles that led to great opportunities for the offense, Gary gambled a lot and the Raptors paid for his gamble. Sometimes it paid off. He got steals, but he he was one of the league leaders in costing his team points because he's gambling on a play, particularly in in the passing lane or something like that. Right. So that affects it. His defense, I don't know how much better it gets on ball. Off ball, it could certainly stand to get much better. Decision-making comes along. The way you read the floor comes along. And offensively, the clutch stats, uh, isolation stats, and stuff like that are very intriguing. You're correct to point that out. But you're looking at a guy who basically his path to improvement is to shoot the ball better. And you look at the difficulty of the shots he takes and that he's already hitting such a high percentage of those shots relative to how other people shoot on those shots, even like some of the best shooters in the league, how much higher can he go? Right? This is what I talked about with Zarrar before the start of last season, the feast or famine thing with him is that he takes tough shots and he doesn't get to the rim. He, he doesn't get any easy shots. So there has to be significant craft added to getting to the free throw line, getting guys off their feet, getting the easy looks at the line, you know, drawing fouls and stuff like that, or more manipulation off the dribble to where he can get steps on guys. But even then, you know, finishing at the rim, getting to the rim are both so poor relative to other guys who have the ball as much as he does that you wonder how he projects and how he keeps on improving on offense outside of just shooting the ball better. And he's already a great shooter. That's what makes it really tough. Um, I, I definitely won't turn my nose up at the idea of him uh, becoming one of the best shooters in the NBA, he's had stretches where he was. All it has to do is just kind of stagnate, and that's you know the stretch or stabilize, I should say. And then the stretch is the shooter, and the shooter's not having a stretch. It's just he's that level of shooter. He's shown he can get there. Will it stay? <sighs> I'd say probably not, but I I wouldn't I wouldn't rule it out. HJ, the four and Charlie Bender are wondering about the starting five with some ponderings about who fits best and where Gary Trent Jr. fits into the future. So I would expect probably um, Precious to come off of the bench to start the season. That that would be my expectation. Uh, the Pascal slash OG at slash Scotty at the five, depending on matchup, they'll assume different roles in the defense, but they're all pretty switchable, especially um, Pascal and OG to some degree. If, if Scotty keeps on improving in his on ball and off ball stuff, then they all become more uh, switchable. But uh, yeah, I'd expect Gary on the, in the starting lineup to start. He's such a wonderful, like his shooting adds a lot to the offense. And I, I think it's very important. And he's also a guy who his catch and shoot stuff is important to his game. He's not just a creator for himself off the dribble, these incredibly difficult shots, but he's a guy who, he needs to be next to good players so that he gets more opportunities to flash his jumper. And that comes way more with the starting lineup than it would if he was just a gunner coming off of the bench in a six man role. There's as much as Gary Trent Jr. might profile in some people's minds is like, maybe he'll end up scoring 25 per game or something like that. He still needs guys to give him the ball in advantageous positions a lot. It's not like he's taking everything from scratch. Uh, although he did do very well at that last year. He still has a bunch of other stuff going on. And Precious, I think, offensively, was a bad player last year. I, I think there's so many interesting things going on with his offense that we'll see. It, maybe he he's a, a good offensive player by next year. But he's a guy who his offense has come and gone in some ways and is dependent on certain things happening on the floor that if you feel like you can make those things happen then he gets more playing time. If you feel like he has to play this certain defensive matchup, then he gets more playing time and that kind of stuff. And, Would it wouldn't surprise me the way that Precious has been improving that he comes in and takes it at some point, especially if the three point shot is real, right? If Precious is a guy who's hitting above the break threes, it changes the complexion of how other teams have to guard him, and that changes the spacing for the guys on ball, like Scotty and Pascal, who aren't typically great pull up shooters, especially from downtown. So that stuff happening could change how all this shakes out, but as it currently stands. I think that it's GTJ in the starting lineup and Precious off the bench, which Precious could start on some teams. You know, it's a, it's cool to have a player projected to be that good as the sixth man. Anobot001 asks who will play more games this year, OG or Fred? I'm going to go OG. OG, I haven't noticed in any of his injuries, the load aspect, right? Like he, he hurts his right hip. Now his left knee is hurt. I haven't seen anything like that. None of them seem to be related. And so much of what he's been injured with is just terrible luck. He broke his finger, played with it for what, like two months and then got at work and then started playing on it again and then got it looked after and then came back and all that kind of stuff. But he gets poked in the eye. He got appendicitis. A lot of the missed games over his career have just been this stupid, dumb luck. He he missed games because he got poked in the eye twice. And is there some chaos to the way that he has his body on the floor? At some point, you have to say the correlation isn't what types of injuries. It's just that this guy puts his body in trouble and has these responses to it. I think you can at some point. I'm not willing to say that yet. I'm thinking he's going to have a healthy year. And Fred maybe will be load managed to some degree uh, this year as well, just to make sure that that knee's all right. So I'm going to say OG uh, as far as that goes. Virtual fan in Jurassic Park asks, where's OG Ananobi? Is he okay? I don't know where he is, but I'm sure he's okay (laughs) As, as far as that goes. Lurking Raptors fan asks, which Raptor benefited most from Nick's extended minutes extravaganza? Awesome question. It was definitely Pascal. If Nick Nurse doesn't lean on Pascal as hard as he did, he probably doesn't make all NBA. And if you ask Pascal about it, I mean people asked him about it during the year. Pascal never turned his nose up at the, uh, the amount of minutes that he was playing or anything like that. He, he just said that, yeah, we're getting minutes. We want to win. So, and Pascal's body held up. So the negative effects that other players felt uh, Pascal didn't, but he also assumed the rewards like in all NBA position because he just played the most minutes per game in the NBA. He was like 39 minutes per game. He had the most closeouts in the NBA. He had the most isolations in the NBA. Pascal is the stamina athlete of the decade in the NBA. He's just doing so much all the time. So in this particular situation, in this season where he didn't get injured and he didn't show any signs of slowing down, uh, I guess he's the guy who benefited the most because he just was playing more minutes in the season where he was kicking ass. So, yeah. Caleb Latrille asks, what would have to happen on an individual and team level for the Raps to go into the tax and re-sign Gary Trent Jr. after this year? So on an individual level, my estimation is that Gary would have to be one of the best shooters in the league. And if that sounds outrageous, he was for about a month and a half, maybe over the course of two months was considering how difficult the shots he was taking, the percentage he was hitting both off the dribble and catch and shoot he was one of the best shooters in the league for a pretty long stretch. If that pays off, if that's the outcome for his career, and we're seeing a guy who's just shooting the hell out of the ball, off the bounce, off the catch, wherever, then the price tag is going up, like way up for him too, especially since he has a, very visceral style of defense where it's very easy to notice the good plays he makes. And he pops as a defender more so than I think the defense values his, his presence probably. And that's not to say he's a bad defender. He, I don't think he was a negative on defense at all last year. I just, he, uh, if he's playing good defense, you know it. So if he, if he shoots the hell to the ball, if he delivers on some of that promise, the Raptors are going to have to reset him. And if he does shoot that well, I think that the mix of Pascal, Scotty, Fred, you know, B-Ball Index, Fred quote tweeted it and was like, Hey, I like this. But B-Ball Index had him as basically the best shooter by talent in the NBA because he shoots so well on catch and shoot threes. And his pull-ups got to a point where they were pretty good too, like around 33, 34% for a while before they dipped when he couldn't shoot any, like at all. Um, Fred, Otto, Thad, Chris Boucher, who I no questions about Chris Boucher, by the way, but he's great. Um, Pascal OG, like if everybody brings their A game next year, the Raptors could be such a funky team and there's going to be a lot of talent and a lot of creation on that team, you know, as awkward as it might look. Uh, that team could be in contender status, especially if everything clicks on defense. So I think those are the terms that have to be met for Gary Trent Jr. to sign into the tax because it would be a hefty tax bill if you're taking Gary's full contract in it. Yeah. Armchair hoops asks if Pascal is able to work on bringing those above the break three point numbers up, especially on pull-ups. How far do you think that lifts him as a player when comparing him to the rest of the league? Does that make him that number one option? You can ride all the way through the playoffs. So, Let's. I'm going to give a longer answer, but yeah, absolutely that does. So when we think about guys like Jason Tatum or Brandon Ingram, these bigger guys who handle these offenses and try and make, try and decision make and get put in these advantageous positions and then make the right decisions and manipulate and then work out of that as a passer, as a shot maker, Pascal Siakam is just a little, little bit shy of where those guys are. He's, I think his decision-making is so tremendous and the passivity that comes at times. And we saw it a little bit, it's daunting to try and attack the defenses that keyed on him as much as he did. What Pascal really needed was a bat, was a Robin to his Batman in so many situations this year that didn't come a guy who could take the heat off of him. Anybody like Scotty, Fred, Gary at times, right? Especially we talked about his isolation and clutch scoring. If that's sticks, if that's there, um, he'll be a great end of game option if he's just shooting like that too. Um, OG, maybe even right for that one game in the playoffs, it popped off. I think he was just a great third option for a couple of games. Um, if Pascal is hitting threes off the pole, like he he shot 34% in the 2019-20 uh, season, his first all-NBA season, that changes how teams have to guard him in the pick and roll. That changes the type of drives he's able to make. That changes the way that he can attack. That changes the way that teams defend him. And when you change how teams defend, you, you get more options. And you make it so that teams can't lock into one thing. Like The Raptors faced a lot of zone over a stretch and didn't succeed at it because nobody was hitting their shots. And Pascal is one of the better players in the league. But he struggles at one thing, shooting three-pointers out of rhythm. Man, does he struggle with that the last couple of years. And a zone does exactly that. If Pascal off the bounce can create his own rhythm to shoot over the top of zones, um, it completely changes what teams can throw at the Raptors. And Pascal is so close, so close to being that in the kind of conversation of number one, with how great his decision making is relative to the advantages he creates how what a fantastic job he did um hitting shots out of the mid-range this year to kind of bring the offense or keep the offense afloat if he was making three-pointers at a decent rate on top of that that's a that's a number one guy for sure considering how he's progressed everywhere else because he's a way better playmaker than he was now than 2019-20 And that combined with the pull-up shooting that he had in 2019-20, that is something to behold. He, uh, it just, advantages compound in the NBA. The more advantages you create, the better things get. Trey Young being this unbelievable offensive engine is exactly that thing. When you can shoot, make great passes, get downhill, and you're not missing any of those. If Pascal had all three of those things going Uh he'd be able to make better decisions, he'd be able to create it easier baskets, and he'd be able to have another um response to certain types of defenses. So yeah, he would be that dude if that came along. Vision 6-9 and a tiny guard asks every year, one to three teams defy predictions for the better or worse. Who are the likely candidates next season? I.e., who are the Phoenix Suns of two years ago? (laughs) You want me to pick the eighth seed. That will go to the finals. Oh, boy. Hmm. <laughs> That's tough. I think maybe some people are still sleeping on the Cavs, I guess. Cavs is a top four seed next season. Seems reasonable to me. And do I think that they'll end up in the finals or something like that? No. But I think that they're, if everybody stays healthy, that team is just going to win a lot of games. Rich in GIS asks about the cruise missile, uh, Wancho Arna Gomez, and if he'll be like Otto or Thad, and recommendations for Filipino places for Ron Harper to eat. So Wancho, that's tough. He has a guaranteed deal, which obviously gives him a huge leg up in uh, a massive leg up in the the camp battles and stuff like that. Svi is also guaranteed, but Svi will see what happens with his deal if somebody pops off in camp. One of those two guys could get cut. Uh, Wancho fits what the Raptors are trying to do. And maybe what the Raptors see here is that Wancho underwhelming in other organizations because the three-point shot didn't come along as much as some teams wanted. The connective passing didn't come along as much as some teams wanted. And the off the ball creation just wasn't at a place where anybody thought that's what it's gonna be. It w- in the movie it was, right? Bo Cruz. But the Raptors as they did for Delano, as they did for Chris Boucher, as they did for every other player by saying, we're going to lean into this type of basketball where we're going to, we're going to win the possession battle. You don't have to be as clean on defense because if you get beat, just peel off to this guy and we'll rotate behind you. And this is the type of defense we play. And your length makes this better than your mistake took away from us, right? Something like that. And offensively, it's like, hey, we're going to bet on you hitting your corner threes. Maybe you are able to take the step out above the break, hit threes from there, your connective passing. We create bigger passing windows because we have longer guys cutting to the rim and we're a little bit more active, that kind of stuff. And then you're bigger, so you have more propensity and more potential as an offensive rebounder. Maybe they think they can paper over the weaknesses of his game with scheme. And that would be the selling point. He ha- he isn't a super exciting player, but he does fit what the Raptors currently are trying to do. And that's a little bit exciting, I think. Gabe underscore hoops asks, last year everyone expected that the D would be one of the best in the league, but for loss of the season, their O was better than the D. They finished strong and they have a lot of continuity. Do you think they will be a top five D on the season? Will it translate to postseason? Oh, Yeah. This is this is the question. Maybe like I was a person who thought that their offense would be better than their defense last year. And if Fred didn't get hurt and Gary didn't go through that massive slump, I think that their offense would have been better than their defense in in offensive versus defensive rating placement. I was not big on their defense headed into last season. I thought that it was going to be mistake prone. I thought that they were going to underperform their defensive talent and they did for long pockets of the season and it got much better at the end though. But then in the playoffs, they gave up two of the largest, you know, offensive rating games in playoff history to the Philadelphia 76ers. Is that because Joel Embiid posed too big a problem for them to solve? And then everything kind of buckled from there. And especially Tyrese Maxey having these incredible games off of that, maybe. And then James Harden, even though James Harden isn't, well, last year, wasn't what he used to be as far as a guy, a shot maker and a guy who creates for others. He's still all NBA level and he can still cripple a defense. So they were looking at a team that really had a lot of talent, but also the Raptors, (laughs) the weak link idea right on defense is that you can't have a weak link. And the 76ers kept finding weak links and it often looked like an injured Fred Van Vliet or Gary Trent Jr. Mostly at the point of attack, that is something that the Raptors will always have to worry about. And the ask the physical toll of their defense over the course of the regular season. I expect lapses. I hope that their defense is, or sorry, I hope that their offense is better next year to cover up for it more often. But I, a top five throughout the whole season, I think, is a big ask. Will it translate to the postseason? Better than last year, I think. But I don't know if it'll be as potent because you can create these stopping points where superstars kind of bend and break your defense that in the, in the regular season, teams don't pay attention that often. They'll pay attention in the postseason. B ball thinking asks non Raptors question. Which team do you think will make the playoffs first? The magic or OKC or Detroit loads of young talent. We'll have lots of growing pains to work through. I wonder who will get things to sync and get into a series first. I would say OKC because they have Shea and among the magic OKC and Detroit. uh, Shea is the best player by a wide margin. Shea free Shea. Put him on a team where he can shine. honestly. But they're in the West, and OKC seems to have no designs on playing meaningful basketball for some time. The Magic, I think, would be my pick. Uh, Detroit will be in the playoffs eventually, too. I think the combination of uh, Durin, Ivy, and Cade, along with, like, Sadiq Bey. Uh, Bagley, will probably be interesting in Detroit once again. All that kind of stuff is fun. Killian Hayes, please turn your career around, man. You just, you got to start doing more. I'd pick the Magic, though. Franz uh, Wagner, not to get into the Franz versus Scotty talk, but Franz is awesome. Uh, I wrote about him back in 2021, actually, and I was just so impressed by how he moved on the court with and without the ball. He's super dynamic. Uh, he's awesome. Wendell Carter Jr. is awesome. Fultz is awesome. Uh, Paolo Banquero looks Incredibly imposing, not just for the college players he played against, but for the the NBA players he will play against. He he looked awesome, rapid with his with his uh, combos and stuff like that too. He just that team looks like it's gonna do something. I wouldn't be surprised if if they kind of sneak in this year actually. Uh, and and Suggs, Suggs, I hope something comes around as far as the the finishing at the rim or the the three-point shooting because he just needs like a swing skill and then everything starts to make sense for his game so yeah i would go magic for sure cat and bird asks steph curry is very obviously the legless of the nba and elite archer and when you consider the absurd depth perception and trajectory mapping and hand-eye coordination who is the aragorn boromir gimli gandalf the gray the white galadriel Gollum okay this is an awesome question very good I, I would go with Giannis as Aragorn He's the, the, the He's not, he's a Greek myth, right? Like that's, you have to make that line, but if you're going to do other types of mythology, other types of, you know, an allegorical comparison, uh, Aragorn is a really good one because Aragorn loves his woman and you know, that's a big part of his story. Giannis loves his woman. That's a big part of his story. And they're both just so good at what they do. Um, the classic idea of a good man i think they both have a lot of the traits that um are often portrayed as a good man in media and in books and all that kind of stuff literature i should say so i think yannis as aragorn and both are so good at what they do so yeah uh gandalf the gray and white i'll combine them into lebron uh just because he's a, a seminal figure in the nba the same way that gandalf is sent by ia to you know influence middle earth and all that kind of stuff and because LeBron, in his career, has done the, the renaissance, the rebirth, the renewal by going to different places and winning, succeeding. And uh, because when we think of Gandalf, we think of him kind of picking hobbits out of places and taking them uh, to get the bag. <laughs> uh, and uh, LeBron kind of plucks role players and takes them around with him as well. So I guess that would be my answer for Gandalf, gray slash white. Boromir, I guess I would go with uh, I go with KD because they're both renowned for their skills, but maybe undeservedly known for a betrayal. Maybe uh, I think that one would be as close as I could get there. You can approach it from a lot of different ideas to make comparisons. Of course, um, Galadriel is really tough, but I guess um, Dame Lillard maybe because. Uh, Galadriel resists the power of the ring, and like like ring chasing maybe for Dame Lord, and they both decide to get it out the mud instead. Uh, loyalty, <laughs> I guess. She's tough. Dame is probably an unsatisfactory answer, but uh, yeah, that would be my answer for that. And then, um, hmm, Pat Bev seems like Gollum to me, just because of his antagonistic behavior towards so many people seems to spur them on to greater accomplishments, I guess. So that would be my answer for that. I guess that would be my final answer for the mailbag as well. So if you're just kicking around like an hour and a half into this, thank you for tuning in. I really do appreciate it. When I first started out doing these, you know, it's hard to get people to care about what you say when you're new on the scene and they don't have like this, they can't look at a background of your opinions and say, oh, this guy knows what he's talking about. But I've gotten to a point where so many people ask questions and I really, I really appreciate that, you know, you people listen and you value what I say. So thanks for tuning in. Uh, that's it though. Uh, y'all be easy. <laughs> I'll see ya.